I'd like to thank Kirk for his announcement this morning and his letting everybody know about this being the second of a two-part and encouraging you all to be here. And I'm grateful for each of you being here tonight as we continue with a little short two-part sermon mini-series that we started this morning entitled, What Jesus Said and Refused to Say and Why. We're going to look at some statements that Jesus made leading up to his crucifixion. We're going to look at some statements he did not make and again, just as importantly, why, as best as we can tell. This morning we read in places like Mark chapter 10 verses 32 through 34, how Jesus told his disciples on the way up to Jerusalem just how and what would happen to him there. We talked about how he told them beforehand in Mark 10, 32 through 34 and in other places how he would be betrayed, how he would be condemned to death, how he would be delivered over to the Gentiles, how he would be mocked, scourged, spat upon, killed, and how he'd rise the third day. Talked about this morning how Jesus knew long before he ever came. We talked about John chapter 12, verses 23 through 33, how he knew everything that would happen to him, how he said, for this purpose I have come to this hour. This was the purpose all along. This was the point all along. He knew every little detail of every horrible thing that would happen to him, John 18 and verse 4. Yet still he came. Still he allowed himself to be put through that. He allowed himself to be nailed to that cross and to stay on it. And as we talked about this morning, something that we always have to carry with us, something that we can never afford to forget, the whole reason for all of it was you and me and our sin. For you, in the eyes of God and in the eyes of Jesus Christ, you as an individual are loved that much by God. I will never get over that. And I think the day any of us get over that, we've lost it. This is what God thought I was worth to him. Instead of speaking up in his own defense, as we talked about this morning, as we were drawing down to a close of the sermon, instead of speaking up in his own defense, Jesus quite often, Jesus who had never lost an argument with anyone over anything at any time, who could have won an argument, stayed strangely silent. He remained faithfully and lovingly silent instead of speaking up in his own defense. We see him doing that when Judas betrayed him with a kiss. Jesus did not speak up in his own defense. He remained silent in that way. He told Peter he could have called 12 legions of angels and his heavenly father would send them at once. And yet he never did so. Time and again he was silent in his own defense. You know why? So that one day he could come to yours in my defense on the day of judgment before the throne of God. His great and limitless love for you is the reason for his season of infinite suffering. Had a man say to me the other day something about a religious man, not a member of the Lord's church, but he said something to me about 
Jesus being the reason for the season. And at that point in time, it was not time to go into detail that Jesus really isn't so much the reason for the season as it were. He didn't tell us to say, and we, we know that. But what I want for us to understand tonight, when we see that phrase, next time, the reason for the season, I want us to understand that we are the reason for his season of infinite suffering on that cross. I'd like to take up where we left off this morning. John chapter 18, if you'd turn there, please. We ended up in John 18 this morning. I'd like to begin tonight with verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now John 18 and verse 2. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. We talked this morning about betrayal by somebody who has worked and worshipped with you. Verse 3. Then Judas, having received the detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things, all of them that would come upon him, went forward, said to them, Whom are you seeking? We discussed this morning as we closed the lesson, verses 5 through 9, where we see that Jesus' prime concern the night that he was betrayed, the night that he was arrested, the night before his crucifixion, his concern was not at this point for his incredible suffering to come. His concern was for his disciples' safety. Jesus, in the midst of all he was facing, was still concerned for his disciples' safety. Verses 5 through 9. In verses 12 and following, we see that after this, he was first led away to Annas. And we would pick up with the events before Annas in John 18, beginning at verse 19 and running through 23. It says there in John 18, 19 through 23, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Jesus' answer is one of love and kindness and compassion. It was not antagonistic. It was not in your face. But look what happens to him. Verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. He drew off and slapped him. Do you answer the high priest like that? He slapped God in the face. And I love Jesus' answer, and it needs to be our answer as well. When people have a problem with what we have said, if we've just been honest with them about God, it says Jesus in verse 23 answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? And that needs to be our answer. And I've used that sort of answer before, and it's like when you, when you put the word of God out there and you present it to somebody and they don't want to, so well, that's, that can't be right, and how dare you? And it's like, if I got it wrong, show me. 
If I don't have it wrong, your problem's not with me, your problem's with God, right? If I said it wrong, show me. I'm open. Folks, I gotta tell you, I'll be honest, it's gonna be, it's gonna be on the recording and it's just straight up honest. I make mistakes, we all do, okay? And sometimes when we're presenting the word to people, we make a mistake. We may quote a wrong reference. We may say something that's not quite right. Okay. So if somebody says, wait a minute, that's not the reference, or that's not, okay, then I made a mistake. We, we, we should never be ashamed to say, okay, I made a mistake. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Okay, I was trying, but I blew it. Okay. And take real responsibility. But if what we've told somebody is what the Bible actually says, they've read it themselves, their problem's not with us. And that's Jesus' point here. If I said something wrong, okay, show me, correct me. But if I didn't say something wrong, why'd you hit me? Why are you upset with me if that's what God said? At this point, I would like for us to turn to the events of Mark 14 as we progress through this puzzle of the four gospel accounts, stringing together some of these events in the best chronological order we can. Mark 14, verse 55 and following. Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 55. And I want you to watch this carefully. Hopefully, maybe see something here that you hadn't noticed before. That is my hope. Now it says the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many, there's a whole bunch of these folks, many, bore false witness against him, but their testimonies didn't agree. Everybody was anxious to step up and lie about him and try to gain the, the uh, approval of the chief priests. They were all willing to do that, but their testimony didn't agree. They were making as much of a mess out of it as they possibly could. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't agree, they couldn't come up with a case. It wasn't working for them. It says here, then some, verse 57, rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, we've heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. Not even then. Stop and think about this. They got, they got Jesus, they want to they make a case, but they got no case. And they know they've got no case. They can't even get the liars to agree about it. And so the high priest is getting frustrated because he wants to get Jesus. And so finally the high priest stands up in the midst. And he asks Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? Jesus, just hoping he'd say something to incriminate himself. But Jesus... Kept silent. He didn't say a word. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, I want you to stop right there. I want you to think about this scenario. Their case is coming totally apart. They've got no case. These clowns were worse than the Keystone Cops. They couldn't make it work. They couldn't make the case. And the high priest, as you read this, it appears he's getting frustrated because he finally stands up. He's heard all of this, and he sees how it's not working, and, and he stands up, and he says to Jesus, look, are you the guy or not? Trying to get him to say something. Now, here's the thing. If Jesus 
at this point. Just remain silent. Probably. Maybe, at the very least, he escapes the crucifixion. They've got no case. They know it. They can't present this. If he just maintained his silence, as he had done so many times before, if Jesus would just keep his mouth shut at this point, he might have avoided the agony, he might have been spared the scourging, and he might have escaped the crucifixion. But then, you and I, we'd have no hope, would we? You and I would have absolutely no chance of making it to heaven. Jesus is, is, is there. They can't make a case. They're getting frustrated. All he's got to do is keep, but if he keeps quiet, Jesus knows that you and I will not be in heaven because we have no chance of getting there. And so, because he knew it would take his perfect blood to save your soul, your soul, your, make it personal, yours, my soul, and he saw they couldn't even make a viable case on their own unless he actually spoke up and incriminated himself for them because they couldn't get the job done. Jesus Christ does the unthinkable. Now he speaks up. He has to incriminate himself. He has to make their case for them because they can't seem to make it and make it work. And so Jesus... The second time, when he could have just been quiet and maybe escaped it all, said, I am. And he didn't just stop there. Jesus could have just stopped there. He'd answered that question. But you see, Jesus had to make sure that they carried through with crucifying him. Jesus understood the plan, and he was so committed to it. He not only answered their question and said, I am, he says something he knows will make their blood boil. He says something he knows will incriminate him beyond all escape. He says something that he absolutely knows will be all they need to make their case and end some. So instead of being quiet, Jesus not only says, I am. He says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Wow. Wow. When he could have kept silent, he made sure he said exactly what it would take to keep the process moving forward because you needed a savior. He knew exactly what it would take to keep the process intact and the cross in his future despite their ability to accomplish it on their own and so he spoke up and he underscored it with the rest of verse 62 just to make sure. What was the end result? Verses 63 and following, success, mission accomplished. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? Okay, the, the high priest is happy. These witnesses can't get it right and can't make the case anyway. And so the high priest says, okay, we don't need them anymore. He's done it. He's, he's, he's put his neck in the noose, as it were. We've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death, and some began to spit on him, just like he said and to blindfold him, and to beat him, and say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Please keep in mind, when it talks about striking him with the palms of their hands, they're slapping him, as opposed to punching him. They're slapping him. Now, as 
As we look there at the end of verse 65, we see that end result, mission accomplished. As we continue to read through the Gospels, the Gospel accounts, we will see several times where Jesus was silent before Pilate as well. When he could have spoken up to save himself, he didn't. When he could have been silent to save himself, he spoke up. We would notice before Pilate just one of these instances where he could have spoken up and saved himself, but instead chose to stay silent in order to go to the cross to save us. Mark 15, 1 through 5, look what it says. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders, the scribes, and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. The chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. He could have won this argument, but he didn't. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing. The creator of the universe, God in the flesh, who had all the answers. Didn't speak. And save himself, because saving you and I was more important to him. We see the same sort of silence if you're taking notes. When he was sent to Herod and Herod questioned him in Luke 23, verses 9 through 11. As we look at Luke's account in Luke 23, in verse 20, we will find that Pilate desperately, desperately, desperately wanted to find a reason to release Jesus. He was trying with all he had to find a reason to release Jesus. He tried three times to accomplish that according to Luke 23. Verse 22, and as Pilate is desperately trying, not once, not twice, but three times to find a way to release Jesus, all Jesus had to do was to speak up and to appeal to the authorities of both heaven and earth, and he could have won. All he had to do was speak up to Pilate. He could have escaped and avoided the crucifixion. But he did not because you needed his blood and he knew that. If you were going to escape the wrath of God for your sins for all eternity, you needed his sacrifice. Look with me in Mark 15, beginning at verse 16 and running through 20. Jesus did not speak up and make a defense for himself. Pilate was left with no choice and it says in Mark 15, beginning at verse 16, and the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. They gathered together the whole garrison, all of these hardened Roman soldiers. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him on the head with a reed, and they spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. I'll tell you what, any human being that had the power and the ability and the authority to escape that. You know what? You know what I'd have said? Okay, boys, this little charade is over. What a temptation that must have been for Jesus. All he had to do was say the word, and this whole thing would have come to a screeching halt. But he never opened his mouth. He just let them beat him because he knew I needed a savior. 
Mark 15, again, verse 20. When they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. All of this while legions of angels, if I can use the term, it's not what the scripture says, but if I can use the term, all of this going on while legions of angels are on red alert, just waiting for the word. Just waiting for the word. And they would have come immediately to rescue him and annihilated those who tortured him, but the word never came. Only a bloody beat down, and it was a beat down. Which the Savior endured with great and silent agony for yours and my sin. And as a result, he was finally led away to be crucified. Luke 23, please turn there. What Jesus did not say was powerful. As powerful as what he did. He said nothing. Luke 23, beginning at verse 27 and running through 31. Luke 23, verse 27, and running through 31, a great multitude of the people followed him. This is as he's being led away to be crucified. And women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turning to them, now think what this poor man's endured. He's been scourged, he's been beaten, he's had these, what most commentators I've read believe are about two inch thorns, that crown of thorns. Those were common in that area. About two inch thorns, and that reed was like a small club and just beat into him, and he had been slapped around and beaten and all of these things, and, he, and he's so weak from blood loss, he can't carry his own cross, and yet, as he's being led out, these women are mourning and lamenting, but Jesus turned to them. He wasn't concerned with his own pain. He was concerned with theirs. Daughters of Jerusalem, and I don't think he said it like I'm saying it. The man's lips are probably swollen, beaten, I don't know how the words come out, but it wasn't, I'm sure, like I am saying them, but he said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. How could you not weep for this man who's, who looks like this, is going through this for you? But he said, don't cry for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for indeed the days are coming, in which they will say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? His point is, if they're doing this to me, what are they going to do to you after I'm gone, you who reject me? And Jesus' concern was for them. Jesus' concern was for the suffering of God's Old Testament people because they rejected him. That brings us to the so-called seven recorded statements of Jesus on the cross. Chronologically speaking, we're going to take a look at them, and they probably went pretty close to something like this. Number one, Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 34. Luke 23, verses 32 to 34. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. The criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Statement number one, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is who I want defending me on Judgment Day. Father, this one's forgiven. Now, access to that blood-bought forgiveness would not occur for them until a little later on in Acts 2, 
But please notice the very ones that were responsible for all the brutality we've talked about today had the same exact access to God's forgiveness as everybody else. I've heard people say before, I can go to church, the roof would fall in. Or I've done too much, God couldn't forgive me. There's a Greek word for that, it's baloney. The very ones who were responsible for everything we've talked about today, Jesus begged the Father and said, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. While both of the criminals crucified with him originally hurled insults and abuse at him, according to Matthew 27, verse 44, to which I might add, while they're both heaping abuse on him, I don't see Jesus saying anything but just... But apparently both of them did originally, Matthew 27, 44, but later on one of them apparently had a change of heart, and that change of heart is recorded here in Luke 23, verses 39 through 43, as we look at the second statement of Jesus from the cross. Verse 39, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. What a temptation that must have been. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Don't you even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He'd watched Jesus, and even though he'd, he'd blasphemed him in the beginning, he'd come to understand Jesus was this, this righteous man who, who hadn't done anything wrong. He didn't deserve what he was getting. And then he says to Jesus, verse 42 of Luke 23, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Just like that. This man's a criminal. This man has a right. This man's being put to death because he's a criminal. And yet he shows faith in Jesus. And Jesus, just like that, despite this man's background, despite his crimes, Despite the insults that this, this man a few hours prior to this was blaspheming Jesus. When he changes his heart, when he repents, Jesus automatically accepts him. Said, this very day, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. In John 9, verses 25 through 27, if you will turn there, John chapter 19, I should say, John 19, 25 through 27, you're going to see two more statements, the third and fourth of Jesus on the cross. John 19, verses 25 to 27. Now they stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And, and you've got to remember that Jesus, as he's crucified, and, and as, as he, he can't get his breath, and as his legs are, are crossed, and that spike is driven through in his hands, he's got to raise himself up for every breath. And I can see him almost syllables at a time raising himself up instead of words at a time. So it wasn't like some intelligible sentence. I don't see that. But he's, he's through, through these, these lips that are swollen. Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother and in the same sort of way. It wasn't just like, well, woman, behold your son. Behold, He wasn't in that condition. He couldn't do that. And from that very hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Again, Jesus' main concern was not the blood that was flowing out of his body. 
wasn't the blood every time he raised up on that, that wooden cross. It wasn't finished like this. That's not the way they did it. It wasn't fine wood, but that splintery, rotten old wood. I mean, they, they did not have a lot of lumber in that area. And as they crucified people, they took the, this rotten old, nasty wood. They didn't sand it down. And every time he raised up and the splinters dug into that back where he had been scourged and he, and he put these words out there, even then, what was Jesus' concern? For his mother? for this disciple, for you and me. Somewhere near the conclusion of that six hours of suffering that way, fighting for every labored breath, struggling for every breath he took, Jesus cried out to his father. And please notice at that point, the request, the words that did not cross his lips, or my God, my God, I cannot do this, not for these people. That's not the words that came out of his mouth. Could have, but he didn't. The words that came out of his mouth were instead, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27 and verse 46. That was statement number five, and it brings us to the last two recorded statements of our Savior's crucifixion. Those last two statements are in John 20, uh, 19, verses 28 through 30. Here they are. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. He said it to fulfill the scriptures. His main concern was fulfilling the scriptures, doing his father's will no matter what it cost him. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine put it on hyssop, put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, statement number seven, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Did you notice he gave up his spirit? See that in that last phrase? You know what that means? That means that any time during his suffering, during that six hours or so on the cross, at any time he could have given up his spirit. He had the power to give up his own spirit. And as he told the disciples in John 10 to take it up again, he'd received that authority from his father. He could have given up his spirit, but until the last scripture was fulfilled, until everything was done that needed to be done exactly according to the scriptures, this plan had to be carried out to the most finite detail, the plan in place before the foundation of the world to save you and I from our sins. It was at that point Jesus said, okay, done. And he gave up his spirit, which he could have done prior to, but chose not to. What is the common thread throughout? Jesus lived and died in complete obedience to God Almighty. To pay that price of having to face the full and unfettered wrath of God for us because he knew we could not survive that. And we couldn't make it to heaven. We couldn't. One of the things that, and you note takers, you're going to really need your pencils here and I'll try to speak slowly. One of the things that amazes me most about this whole scenario is how long Jesus literally actually knew he was going to have to do this and he, he didn't swerve from it. We can go back hundreds of years in the Bible and find the very words Jesus spoke on the cross told to us 
He knew hundreds of years, right down to the sentences. And I want to show you that tonight. When people say, well, the Bible's just this old book that doesn't really apply to us today, and we don't know who wrote it. No, no, that's another Greek word baloney statement, okay? So many years, almost a thousand years, a millennia, before Jesus ever came and went to the cross, he was giving us glimpses of exactly right down to the words what he would say when he got here. He knew. Let me prove it to you. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 22nd Psalm. Psalm 22. David, around a thousand years, give or take, prior to Jesus dying on that cross, right down to the sentences. Look at verse 1. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is found in the Gospel accounts in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46, as well as Mark 15 and verse 34. That's the exact words Jesus said. But this psalm doesn't stop there telling us how much God knew and telling us that God did know since forever what he was going to have to go through on that cross. For example, as we continue on in Psalm 22, look with me at verse 7 and 8. Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Does that sound familiar? That is found in Matthew 27, verse 43, and in Luke 23, 35. These very words given by God to David a thousand years prior to. This tells me my Bible is true. There's a thousand other things that tell me my Bible is true, but this tells me the Bible is true. How on earth could David have said it right to the word? Unless God told him. We move on in Psalm 22. We look at verses 14 and 15. David said, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. That describes crucifixion. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. They have brought me to the dust of death. When he says my tongue clings to my jaws, you brought me to the dust of, dirt, uh, dust of death. He's so thirsty. He's so thirsty. You ever had your mouth just so dry and you can't get a drink and maybe you've been out mowing the lawn or working or, or maybe you're an athlete and, and you're just, your, your tongue is so dry and it tastes like sandpaper in your mouth and you just don't have enough to drink. This is a foretelling of John 19, 28 when Jesus said, I thirst. He was so thirsty on that cross. If we look at verse 16 of Psalm 22, he says, dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Look at this. They pierced my hands and my feet. Please notice that as we read these, pierced here, David's hands and feet weren't pierced, and yet this is past tense. Why? I'll tell you why. Why, I believe. Because it was a done deal. 
It was as sure as if it had already happened. This was going to happen. Jesus' hands and feet were going to be pierced. He was going to die by having those nails driven through. And it was so certain that even a thousand years prior to it happening, God used it in the past tense because it's a done deal. It's as sure as if they were already looking back at it instead of looking forward to it. We see this, of course, as we look at this piercing. We see this in Matthew 27, verse 35, as well as others. We look at verse 17 of Psalm 22, and it says, I count all my bones, they look and they stare at me. There are many places in the crucifixion of Christ where people walk by and they wag their heads, places like Matthew 27, verse 36, as well as verse 39. Luke records it in Luke 23, verses 27 and 35. John records it in John 19 and verse 37. They all walked by and they, they, they stared at him and they watched him there. And finally, verse 18 of Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. David wasn't talking about himself. This was prophecy. This was God through David telling us that he knew exactly what was coming a thousand years later when Jesus came. For my clothing, they cast lots. We see that in all four of the gospel accounts. Matthew 27, 35. Mark 15, verse 24. Luke 23, verse 34. And John 19, 24. And the reason I pause to give you all of those is because I want you to really understand that this was carried out to the letter and God was letting them know. Jesus knew. And he knew you. And he knew what he was going to have to do for you. He knew what he was going to have to come and do and go through for you and me because we could not survive the wrath of God. Not like he could and still go to heaven because he was innocent and we're not. And during that process, as we've learned today, there were times when Jesus could have spoken up, but he remained silent. There were times when Jesus could have stayed silent, but he spoke up. And throughout it all, his only concern was us. Us, his own disciples. That's what makes him perfect. That's what makes him able to be able one day to speak up in our defense. When we come before the throne of God, he is the perfect sacrifice and savior who will in that day speak up. No, that's one of mine. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom. Jesus will speak up because he didn't then. Hopefully today you've caught a small glimpse, a glimpse more, a renewal, a review of how much God wants you, how much God loves you, how much God does not want to live without you. Hopefully today you've caught a glimpse of what you are worth to God. Some young people take their lives and they think they're, they're worthless and they don't find, I'm telling you, your life is worth so much to God 
Question tonight. What is that kind of love worth to you? That's the question it leaves us with. What is the Lord really worth to you? Is he worth to you repenting and surrendering your entire heart and soul and life and will to? Is a love like his worth that to you? And I'm not talking about just being baptized, but truly surrendering your will to his. Living with an attitude of, I have come to do my father's will because he loves you so much and you just, you, you can't get your mind around that. What is he worth to you? Is he worth, in just a minute or so, is he worth stepping out into that center aisle? If you've never repented of your sins and turned your life over to him and, and been baptized for the forgiveness of those sins, is he worth, after what you've heard today, stepping out into that aisle and coming down here and saying, you know what? He's going to be top priority in my life, and I need his love and cleansing more than anything. That's what he's worth to me. He's worth giving up that sinful habit. He's worth giving up those people who, who do not share in this love or this, this goal of heaven. He's worth giving it all. That love of his is worth everything. Is he worth that to you? Is he worth to you telling somebody about this week? Is he good enough? Does he love you enough? that you're willing to share that with somebody, anybody, this week? Is he worth making the top and only priority in your life from now on? If the answer to any of those questions, and you know yourself, and God knows you. I don't know you that well. God does and you do. And if the answer to any of those questions up to this point has been no, God's waiting with open arms for you to turn that around and answer him yes tonight. Yeah, he's worth it. And I want to change and I want to be better and I want to be stronger. <coughs> Is he worth that? If you have a decision to make to either be baptized into Christ because he's worth it or to come forward for the prayers to be a stronger Christian because God is worth it to make him top priority. If you have a need tonight, any of those things, do not let Satan convince you to sit there in that pew if you need to respond. Nobody in this room is going to think less of you by walking down that aisle. Many of them will probably be thinking, I wish I had the courage to do that. Do you have a need? Let us know if you do as we stand and sing.